And all of the people who funded Facebook said, this is fantastic, let's cash out. And a lot of people who Zuckerberg had hired to be executives at this little company said, fantastic, you know, all my bonuses are kicking in, I'm going to be rich. And even some of the young people who went on there said, wow, I've been working this company for six months. I just got out of college. I could buy a house. And everyone said to Zuckerberg, sell, sell, sell. And he said, no, 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 no. I don't want to sell. This is amazing potential. I want to you know, keep this company. And at one point, the pressure was on him so much that he kind of agreed. And then uh, Yahoo got a little greedy and said, you know, well, our stock is down. Maybe we'll give you a little less than a billion dollars. And he used that as an excuse to slither out and keep Facebook independent. How's it, guys? And welcome back to yet another cracking edition of the Matt Brown Show. Today, I am joined by Stephen Levy all the way from New York. Uh, Levy is the editor-at-large at Wired in the U.S. Uh, his previous positions include editor-in-chief at Back Channel and chief technology writer and senior editor for Newsweek, uh, some of the biggest media publications in the world. Now, in today's episode, we're going to cover his latest book, Facebook, The Inside Story. Earlier this year, his book was released, and it's the product of over three years of studying the company, which granted him unprecedented access to its employees and executives. Levy has written previously seven books and has had articles published in Harper's, Macworld, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Premier, and The Rolling Stone. Stephen has won several awards during his three decades years of experience writing about technology, including Hackers, which PC Magazine named the best sci-tech book written in the last 20 years. Pay careful attention to some of the inside stories here, guys, around the acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp by Facebook. So without further ado, enter Stephen Levy. How's it, guys? Welcome back to another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. Today, I'm joined live from the bright lights of New York, Stephen Levy. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. So, uh, guys, we are broadcasting this live on uh, Twitter. Uh, Stephen, have a look at my um, my profile there and give it a retweet to your massive following, apparently. Uh, then YouTube um, as well. You can catch us there. Facebook, we do have a community um, management team on the line, basically ready to take your questions. We will be giving away some very cool free stuff, so feel free to Keep those questions coming in. We will be taking them live and asking them to our esteemed um, guest today. So, uh, Stephen, you're uh, obviously the author of a book called Facebook, um, The Inside Story. You are not only an author of that book. You've written quite a few books, actually, um, covering a lot of the tech space, etc. cetera. Um, how would you um, sum up very briefly, if you were to give a two-minute intro for our audience all around the world. Uh, who is Stephen Levy? What are you about? What keeps you up at night? Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm an English major, a literature major, who stumbled into the world of computers in the early 1980s and thought this is the biggest story of our time and started writing about it. And uh, for almost 40 years, I've been documenting this amazing change to all our lives and all the people who are behind it the companies that are behind it. And uh, you say Facebook is my eighth book and I, and it is a perfect subject for me because what I try to do is tell the complete story of something uh, for the first time to uh, illuminate something that has a big impact on our lives and, um, and get into it so deep that even the people involved learn stuff they didn't know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so Facebook, the inside story. I mean, um, what's the premise of that book? I mean, obviously we all know Facebook. Uh, there's a ne- there's a quite a neg- negative narrative in some sense, uh, which I'm sure you would have covered. Um, uh, but w- why did you write this book? What caught your attention about this particular um, narrative? Well, late August uh, 2015, Mark Zuckerberg, who everyone knows is the guy who founded Facebook and he's been the CEO. He runs it like a king. Mm. Um, He posted that a billion people had been on Facebook in the last 24 hours, the previous 24 hours. And I realized, wow, that had never happened before. You get the World Cup and maybe a billion people watch it, but that's like a, a spike. Um, and it's not interactive. Those people can't talk to each other or, um, you know, post something viral to change people's minds or make them out, make them mad. Uh, and uh, this is the baseline for Facebook. It's only going to get bigger. Uh, so I figured, even though I've been covering Facebook for a number of years, I figured, well, this, I really want to know the complete story of this. How did this happen? What are the implications? Um, and what, what, what's next? And, uh, and what are, what are, what's, what's just the big story behind it? So I set out to uh, document that story, get them to give me access so I could tell it in more depth. And um, almost literally a year to the day after that, I went to Nigeria with Mark Zuckerberg to begin my research. Wow, incredible. Can you describe um, some of the access that you were given? Like how high up did you, did you get in the end? Well, as, as indicated, I, you know, I was able to talk to uh, people at the top, but also uh, including Zuckerberg. I think I talked to him nine times during the three years I worked on the book. Sure. Um, but also people who just made things happen way down the line, you know, engineers and uh, people – you know, in data centers and uh, the people who were in charge of moderating the content, who sit in those you know, boiler rooms that they look like and uh, determine what horrible content has to come down. Um, and as you indicated before, during the time I wrote the book, the whole narrative changed because I wrote it, you know, starting a couple months before the 2016 election. And after that, the whole narrative of Facebook changed is they came under really an intense scrutiny for the problems that they had uh, on on their site. And uh, so the book really became a, an effort to try to document how those things came about, right? Mm-hmm. So Chekhov says that if you put a gun in the first act of a play, uh, the third act has got to go off. So when I was researching this book in the last couple of years, all these guns were going off. So I went backwards and found out how they were planted. That's crazy. Um, and tell me, um, how do you, I don't know if you maybe got some insight there, but um, how does Mark Zuckerberg see his role on the global stage as a, as obviously being the, the kind of CEO, founder and CEO of Facebook, but more broadly, in terms of his sphere of influence, you know, if he's, if he's in charge ultimately of this platform that's connected the entire world largely um, and still connecting more and more people every single day, how does he see his role as, you know, the custodian of influence in the social sphere? Well, he has sort of a, a schizophrenic view of that, that on one hand, um, he's entirely comfortable with all this power he has. And that's one thing that is consistently remarkable to me um, you or I, I don't know about you, but me, uh, if I had that responsibility, it, it would blow my mind. And, you know, I would feel 
um, you know, overwhelmed by it, but he seemed to, you know, just take it in stride. Um, and he knows how powerful it is on one hand. On the other hand, um, he keeps saying, well, you don't want me to have all this power. He, he keeps trying to not own up to it in, in a way. And, you know, and, you know, when we say, hey, you have to make this platform safe for everyone. He says, yeah, I do, but you don't want me to make all the decisions about what people can say. Well, you built this thing, buddy. You know, you really can't offload that responsibility. So um, while on one hand, he has to run Facebook in a way which isn't toxic to the world. And, you know, in some cases, he's not done a great job of that. Um, On the other, he, he has to own up that it isn't someone else who's going to tell him how to do it or take the responsibility away from him, but he has to own up to that. And, you know, with a lot of criticism, he's had to deal with that. Okay. Um, And what did you discover about Facebook um, as an organization that potentially isn't really being discussed in the public domain? Was there anything that came up in terms of your three years of, of kind of getting this exclusive access to Facebook and the executives that do run this organization? Um, did anything come through that surprised you? Well, I guess uh, there were things that had been mentioned but really hadn't been documented before and really weren't understood for um, the degree of influence they had. One is how much the hunger for growth shaped everything that Facebook did. And uh, I tell a lot of untold stories about uh, Facebook's growth team, uh, which was charged with you know, a- expanding Facebook, really no matter what. It was almost like the dirty dozen. Uh, there was this group that sat apart from everyone else. And you know what happens in growth groups stays in growth group. Um, they call it the growth circle. And they did all sorts of tricks. Uh, some of them, you know, really pushed the edge of what was acceptable in order to uh, drive growth of Facebook. Um, you know, one example is that little strip, the little carousel of faces you sometimes see mm. uh, on your feed and saying, people you may know, you know, that that's a crazy product. I mean, you know, people come up there and you look at it and they're saying, wait a minute, like, you know, I, I kind of know that person, but how does Facebook know that I know that person? Mm-hmm. Where sometimes you'll say, well, wait, I don't know that person. And if you look into it, you'll find a connection that Facebook shouldn't have known. One example is um, uh, the, the case where people showed up who were fellow patients of the same psychiatrist, right? So Facebook uses all these data sources to figure out, you know, who you might be friends with. And the reason they do that is that the more people you have in your feed, the more likely you are to get content you are interested in, the more you'll stay on the platform and the, you know, the more you might get other people to get on the platform. Yeah. Obviously um, one of the big um, talking points recently, I don't know whether you saw that, um, that Netflix documentary, uh, Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so obviously there, there was quite a stink about that. And, um, obviously, you know, if, if companies in whichever way are, are using the data within the Facebook ecosystem to manipulate anything, really, it doesn't spec- kind of send the right message in terms of the original Facebook idea and ethos, right? Um, right. and, yeah, and so, um, and what did you observe around the use of data and or the appetite to correct and or maybe even take accountability for the, the reality that, 
we find ourselves in in the context specifically as a case in point, and maybe this isn't the only one, but within Cambridge Analytica and then more broadly around you know fake news. Yeah, well, no, the, that Netflix special was you know you know it, it was an interesting documentary, but it wasn't really didn't get the Facebook angle of it, and you know that's what I really tried to dig into it. I tell the story of Cambridge Analytica in a really long chapter. Um, and in the context of how that really happened, because I figured out that Cambridge Analytica, which we all learned about in 2018, actually happened in 2010. And it was the data that you mentioned, which was the core of it. Um, Facebook, uh, actually in 2007, uh, opened up its platform to third-party software developers. These mm-hmm. are people who write applications. And they wanted to, you know, Facebook said, hey, let's make the internet social and we'll let these software writers write applications that are social and they'll run on top of our platform. We'll be like Microsoft is for productivity. You know, you know they can write apps for us. And in order to do that, they have to give away some information about your friends when you sign up for one of these apps. And in 2010, they decided to give away even more information because they were pushing something called instant personalization where you would go to some website and the web, the people running the website who signed onto this program would know everything about your social network on Facebook. So Facebook had to give them that information. So they opened this up and anyone who wanted to write an application on Facebook and that didn't have to be just a, an app, like a game app or something like that, but could be just a survey would not only get the information of people who took the survey, but the information about all the friends of the people who took the survey. So I would sign up to do some dumb survey saying, what, what, what kind of animal do you want to be or something like that? And, you know, they would get my information from Facebook, but also the information of everyone I'd friended on Facebook. Mm. Now, the, the people on Facebook have an average of 130 friends. And, you know, so getting that, you know, if you get 100,000 people to take your app, you've got millions and millions of dossiers on people who had nothing to do with this app. They didn't want your their information to go to the people writing the survey. And that's perfectly within the rules of Facebook. Now, where Cambridge Analytica, you know, violated Facebook's terms of service is when they gave that information to this company, this political company that was trying to elect far right-wing politicians, you know, eventually Donald Trump. Um, And that scandalized people. But the real outrage was how easily that information flowed from Facebook to developers totally within what was okay with Facebook. Mm. And what I found is that when Facebook wanted to do that, people around Mark Zuckerberg said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Mark. This is too much. It's it's not right to do this. And Zuckerberg overruled them, and they went ahead with it. Well, um, yeah, it's uh, it was a fascinating account because I think the thing what what really struck me, uh, not knowing the full Cambridge Analytica story, I kind of saw it. Funnily enough, on Facebook, you know, Facebook being a great place for news, quote unquote, um, and um, you know, went onto Netflix, had a, had a listen to it and a look at it, and um, I was shocked actually at how much influence a platform like Facebook actually has over everybody who uses it. Um, and so I wanted to kind of get um, your objective and uh, inside of you here. I mean, how much how much influence uh, does Facebook really have 
today? If you were to quantify that, how much influence do you feel that it actually has? Do we feel like maybe we're reading into it too much, you know, because of stories like Cambridge Analytica? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Well, I mean, it really depends on the person. Let me put it this way. We use it a whole heck of a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, So we spend a lot of time on Facebook, not just Facebook, but the other properties they own, WhatsApp, um, Instagram. And uh, they know a lot about us. Um, and they, they use that information. They say to their service ads. Um, but over the time of their history, they've also used information about us um, that they've managed to get in order to uh, inform their own business practices, right? So uh, they know a lot about us. There's these things called likes that I talk about. Uh, we all know what a like is on Facebook, mm. but it really was a turning point for Facebook to um, just get even more information uh, about us. So when we like something, whether it's you know, uh, you know a page on Facebook or even a page on the web because Facebook started putting its like button on millions and millions and millions of other websites that allowed them uh, to stick that button on there to report on our activities outside of Facebook to Facebook. Um, So a researcher uh, found out that by knowing your likes, even if you didn't like too many things, even if you didn't, you know, didn't press the button a whole lot of times, they can know so much about you. Um, and you know, within just like a handful of likes, they could tell your sexual orientation, you know, how you'd vote. Um, and if 15 likes, they'd know you as well as an acquaintance. Mm-hmm. And 100 likes, they'd know you as well as a, a good friend. And if 300, they had 300 likes, they, Facebook would know you better than your spouse. So, uh, and at the time the, this researcher did this work, all the likes were public. You know, anyone could scrape Facebook and, and learn that information about people. And after that uh, thing came out, Facebook uh, hid the likes. So, you know, not everyone could automatically see everyone else's um, likes and therefore get that zoom in and, and, and know everything about them. But Facebook still knew it. Mm, yeah. And that information is used not only to serve ads that get you to buy things, but to allow political organizations to target you when it feels that it can manipulate your fears Mm. and get you either to vote for their candidate or just if they figure you're never going to vote for their candidate, you're never going to vote for Donald Trump. This is literally what happened. 
to get you so disgusted with the system that you're not going to vote at all. Mm. So I don't think Facebook had that in mind when they started that, you know, gee, this is going to be an engine that people can use to discourage people to vote. But that's the way it worked out. Yeah, it's interesting that, right? So they kind of, they, they, they basically grew so quickly uh, that they developed the, the a real power to change the world, right? Uh, but then, as you would expect with the, the human condition, you know, like it's obviously fallible. And so people rec- saw this, as you said, they saw this, this, a lot of this data was publicly facing and then they decided to, well, as you, as you correctly pointed out, started to manipulate the system, right, because of this data. Um, and so I, I wanted to kind of touch on that and double down on that for a second. So fake news is something that we, that we are all aware of um, in many respects. And, um, but I think a lot of us don't actually know when something is fake or not. Uh, if you think about COVID-19 was another one, all those conspiracy theories, right? I'm sure you would have um, heard about a few yourself, right? Um, but, yeah. um, you know, all these conspiracy theories around, uh, you know, COVID-19 and, 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 um, and so the average user of Facebook, in my view, doesn't know how to tell the difference. Um, and some of the stuff is actually becoming so well produced now. I mean, there was a, a we've got a WhatsApp group for my employees, and um, one of the guys shared a, about a ten minute audio clip. Okay, and I listened to it, and it was beautifully produced with an English sounding actor, but that was perfectly scripted. You could hear other people in a room. It sounded like a press conference, and the story was that he was a, a former employee of Vodacom, and he developed a lot of the five G technology products. And he was revealing, you know, da, 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 and you can see where I'm going with this. And so yeah. one, one of the recent um, uh, eventualities or consequences of this kind of thing was that they set a light to 5G um, uh, satellite, or not a satellite tower, but a communications tower in the UK. Like they literally set it to light. But it's it's not true, and so a lot, as you can as as you can kind of see, I think people kind of really battle to tell what is fake and what isn't fake, and what they should trust and who should they and who shouldn't they trust. Um, and so I wanted to ask you in that context, what is your advice there to the ordinary user of Facebook? How do we determine what information to trust versus the information that we should ignore? Yeah, yeah, and this is something you know that's unfolded over the years. I really document how that you know has rolled out you know because facebook you know look obviously there's a lot of stuff on facebook that we do like and you know during this period a lot of people use it even more to keep in touch with people they know um you know and they you know they're they're in private groups that you know uh, are valuable to them but also as you point out facebook is a breeding ground for misleading information and and in a way, its own design allows that to happen in a lot of ways. Um, basically, uh, one thing that happens is that it's, um, you know, uh, you can't tell by the design whether something comes from a, quote, legitimate publication uh, or whether it's something made up. Um, you know, Facebook's done some things to address this. We could talk about that. But for a long time, um, you know, say during the election, uh, uh, presidential election, you know, uh, people made up not only news stories, but made up news publications that seemed real. There was a publication called like the Denver Guardian, and people would assume, oh, that's the newspaper in Denver. No, it wasn't. The, the newspaper in Denver is the Denver Post, but you couldn't tell the difference between a story from the Denver Guardian and the Denver Post. You couldn't look up 
if you looked up the Denver Guardian, you know, you would see an address for it, which turned out being a parking lot. Uh, you know, kind of story about like, you know, Hillary Clinton killing an FBI agent or whatever it was, like it was fake, but you couldn't tell the difference. And the second thing is that how these stories can spread much more widely than, you know, uh, a story from a legitimate publication because Facebook rewarded uh, the kind of engagement that a sensational story gets more than you know, like a carefully researched story gets. Mm. And when things started going viral on Facebook, um, Facebook thought this is fantastic. This is great that you know uh, interesting things can percolate through the system. And you know uh, they didn't realize, and then. Uh, there was a period where they didn't want to deal with um, the idea that a lot of this information could be toxic um, and uh, the, uh, destructive, and it could even be used by um, authoritarian governments to, you know, uh, create riots and, and mm-hmm. deadly riots, as, as in the case of Myanmar. Well, um, what have they done? You mentioned they've taken some action and some steps towards controlling this kind of thing. I mean, what have they done your knowledge to well, date what, what they do is that in in you know in some cases now they they don't in some for some cases they don't take it down but they send it to fact checkers um who look at it and you know um and if they deem it you know fake you know or m- m- misleading facebook will flag that at first they just said this is disputed content that didn't work because people clicked on it more you know they, they were like more you know, saying wow what is this uh, but now they give alternate stories that say you know well for the 5g they might say um you know here's some stories that about the that why that's a hoax, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they've even been more aggressive during the virus thing. They've been more proactive than they have with other things um, and, and trying to suppress stuff like that. But, you know, as you point out, for WhatsApp, that's hard to do because WhatsApp is encrypted and they might not be able to see that. Facebook might not be able to see a fake story and, and it gets circulated uh, without Facebook knowing what's in that content. So it gets more complicated. And again, that's something that Facebook designed. You know, WhatsApp is a messaging app, but it also can be a broadcast app because you could forward things to big groups. And, you know, it, it, a story can go viral on WhatsApp, which is kind of crazy because you know, it, it is a, an app you know, originally designed so, you know, people can keep in contact with each other and, or in very small groups. Mm. So one of the things that came out um, as a result of this kind of misinf- misuse, I should say, of the Facebook platform uh, was when the regulators, just as a small case in point, they gave Facebook a, a $5 billion uh, fine um, for privacy claims. This was in July Right. Um, last year, uh, but if you think about the, the 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 kind of size of that penalty, it's it's nothing for Facebook, really. Um, do you feel that regulators, if you think about the consumer, the, the need for consumer information to be one protected and then used in the right way according to uh, whichever uh, laws and uh, legal frameworks, etc. When you think about the fact that those those uh, regulations, I should say, you know, were transgressed in whichever way, uh, but Facebook ultimately had to pay a fine of five billion dollars. That's not exactly a lot of money. Well, it is a lot of money, but you know, let's well, not for them. Someone, someone gave me five billion dollars. Yeah, you know, well, I, if you have Facebook, and but but you're right to Facebook. Facebook can absorb that very easily. 
Um, and indeed, the stock went up when that settlement, you know, which actually hasn't been officially okayed yet, but when that tentative settlement was was uh, announced, um, people said, "Great, Facebook skates through this." You know, and this was specifically uh, this fine was for violating the first round of fines, which were much lower in 2011 when Facebook, you know, did a number of things that violated people's privacy and it was cited by, you know, the U S government, the, you know, uh, you know, federal trade commission, uh, for a number of violations and they had oversight and Facebook violated the oversight. They were under probation essentially, and they violated the probation. Um, mm. and so, uh, what needs to be done is not this system of saying, Oh, you violated us again. Let's give you another fine but to come up with regulation to stop the kinds of behavior, not only from Facebook, but other companies that are privacy violating forms of behavior. You know, like people, some people put up the EU's GDPR uh, regulations as, you know, uh, an example, but, you know, they're not foolproof and, you know, Mm -hmm. people see a way to get around theirs and people got those and all these things come up on your screen saying, you know, when you want to use app or go to a website saying, oh, do you agree to these rules? And you don't even know what you're agreeing to. You, just, you have to say, okay, otherwise you can't use the, the website. Um, so I think we need to go back from the start and say, what is okay for a company to do? What kind of information can companies be allowed to gather uh, about us? What kind of power do we have to say no? Mm to information being collected about us. Start from there, make the rules, and then to say to Facebook and every other company, here's your boundaries, right? You, you, know, you can't go beyond these boundaries, even if it means changing your business model. Mm. If that happened, I think Facebook would do fine. You know, they, they would find a way to monetize their almost three billion users. So uh, it may not be quite as lucrative to begin with, but it might be something that turns out to be even better because they, they wouldn't be under such criticism. People would like them more. Mm. How's it guys? Just a quick one to say, did you know that due to COVID-19 that the small business sector in South Africa is currently at risk with close to 525,000 formal SMEs locally? employing 6.6 million people. These businesses are at greater risk today than ever before. You know, as a community, we need to do as much as we can to help SMEs succeed and survive during this time. And to this end, I've decided to give away free copies of my number one Amazon bestselling book, You're in the Game Today, which shares the 12 principles that high-impact entrepreneurs billionaires and world champion athletes use to overcome the impossible and achieve the extraordinary. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy or maybe share a copy with an entrepreneur that you feel could benefit from this incredible story, please head on over to mattbrownshow.com, hit the Your Inner Game link, put in your details and we'll deliver a digital copy to you instantly. And for more information, guys, about the book and more developments around the Matt Brown Show, head on over to mattbrownshow.com. Yeah, uh, cool. So I've got a question here from uh, Curden Stewart. She says, do you know why Instagram's success bothered Zuckerberg so much? 
Yeah, so this is something that I get into in, in my book, um, uh, how uh, Zuckerberg, uh, he bought Instagram in 2012, and he promised independence to its founders, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger. And in the last few years, uh, he withdrew that independence. He, he drew in both Facebook, or, or both Instagram and WhatsApp closer to him and essentially took the degree of autonomy he gave to those founders away. Um, and I talk about the, you know, just the, the of that. Um, you know, people at Instagram told me that Kevin Systrom, who had it Instagram, that was the CEO of Instagram, um, he would have been stayed there 20 more years if he had that freedom. And he did a fantastic job of, of, of running it. And um, so the Instagram team felt that Zuckerberg was jealous of Instagram's success. And, uh, you know, can, every time people said, hey, isn't Instagram doing well? Isn't, you know, Kevin's system doing fantastic job? You know, uh, Facebook would say, well, they wouldn't have grown so much if it, we didn't give them all those resources, mm. right? Yeah. And it, it almost seemed petulant, right? Um, so I actually asked Zuckerberg straight out, mm. you know, uh, I, because of, I, I was interviewing him and by the end of our, of the period that I was doing this book, um, you know, uh, I knew so much about Facebook that our conversations went pretty deep, pretty quickly. So I even said to him, Hey, Mark, People are saying you are jealous of Instagram. How about that? And uh, he gave me one of those stares he sometimes gives. Sometimes you ask him a question and he doesn't say anything for a while. It's kind of unnerving, but I know how to like weather that storm. And yeah, and then he gave me basically the uh, an, an answer that you know, like it's like, well, first was what are you talking about? And <laughs> you know, yeah, right. And and then said. Something that, you know, after a few, after a number of years, it's time for these folks to move on and, and they should be happy about that. So uh, I think that it's interesting to me about that. I don't, I don't know. He definitely showed, you know, and I do the incidents where it seems that way because he, he was withdrawing resources from Instagram when Instagram was the fastest growing thing at Facebook, but in a strategic level, and he's a very strategic person. What he was thinking is that he wants to move that mojo to Facebook as the company. So he wants to draw those things in together. Um, so Facebook would be seen more as one entity um, and that really required uh, a separation from founders running Instagram and WhatsApp independently um, to one, you know, uh, one Facebook run by Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Well, I think he totally sold too early. A billion is way too, way too little. Pardon me? For Instagram, the, the purchase price for Instagram was a billion, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean it's it's for free. <laughs> I mean, like, like Insta well, at the time he did it. At the time he did it, it was twice what they were valuing themselves at. They were literally doing a funding round at the time that Zuckerberg went after them, huh. um, and the funding round valued Instagram at five hundred million dollars. And he came in there, and he had a secret weapon when he went after Instagram. The secret weapon was this. 
years, six years before he went after Instagram, he was in their shoes. He had a young company, you know, barely two years old. It wasn't making much, any money. You know, it wasn't, it was a very small company uh, with a lot of potential. And Yahoo said to him, we're going to give you a billion dollars for your company. Mm-hmm. And all of the people who funded Facebook said, this is fantastic. Let's cash out. And a lot of people who Zuckerberg had hired to be executives at this little company said, fantastic. You know, all my bonuses are kicking in. I'm going to be rich. And even some of the young people who went on there said, wow, I've been working this company for six months. I just got out of college. I could buy a house. And everyone said to Zuckerberg, sell, sell, sell. And he said, no, 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 no. I don't want to sell. This is amazing potential. I want to you know, keep this company. And at one point, the pressure was on him so much that he kind of agreed. And then uh, Yahoo got a little greedy and said, you know, well, our stock is down. Maybe we'll give you a little less than a billion dollars. And he used that as an excuse to slither out and keep Facebook independent. But he took that lesson with him and, and knew what the vulnerabilities were when he went after Kevin and Mike at Instagram. Um, he knew how to play them. And that was to put them in a room you know, and essentially not let them leave, right? Don't drag it out after a long period of time. And also promise them this independence, mm. you know, and, 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 and give them what he would have wanted, what he might have gone with six years earlier. And he won. He got them to sell when they didn't want to sell. Hmm. And, that, and they recognize now that, well, that was, our, that was on us. They said yes. Mm. And same with the WhatsApp thing. I had an amazing interview with Brian Acton, the co-founder of WhatsApp, who was unhappy as he was with you know, all the things that Zuckerberg did to force him and his partner out, essentially, by you know, taking control from them. He said, we did it. We signed the thing. In that case, it was $20 billion, right? Mm. So he said, it was so crazy. How can you turn down $20 billion? All the people around you, you know, you're going to make so rich. You know, are you going to leave them in the lurch? Because their plans weren't to make a a WhatsApp into a big, super profitable company. They almost wanted to run it in a very modest way. Um, uh, So... You know, uh, and I said to Acton, listen, you you personally, you're worth $3 billion. You know, that can't be that bad. And he said, no, it's not. But, you know, I, I sold out. How does he feel about selling out? I think about that question a lot, selling out. What does that mean? Like, if you sell your company, do you, how does one feel about that? You know what I mean? How does he feel about selling water? Well, he, feel, he feels bad, but, you know, I mean, I mean, he does feel bad. And he blames, he, he has no one to blame but himself. He signed on the dotted line, but he said, we were in a corner. We couldn't say no. He, it was an offer he couldn't refuse. Mm. And then again, that's Zuckerberg. He knew $20 billion was like, like it seemed like in, way crazy insane. It's so bonkers to pay this for this little company that's not making like, like, like any money, but he understood the real value of it. If, WhatsApp were, if, if you know, people want to break up Facebook now. Some people say, okay, make Instagram a separate company. Make WhatsApp a separate company. If WhatsApp went public, right, Facebook bro- broke it out and went public, hey, it'd be worth way more than $20 billion now, way mm. more. Instagram, people say it might be worth $100 billion on its own, right? So uh, these are, you know, he understood that it was a bargain, and he also understood that it was a competitive threat to him. So it was worth even more to Mark Zuckerberg than it would be to some other buyer.
So, uh, you know, so with that, he was able to put them in a position like the Godfather. It's an offer you can't refuse. Um, I've got quite a few questions coming in, guys, from social media. I'm going to take this one from Tamika Govinda. She says, how does Facebook's internal culture compare to Apple and Google? Okay, so I, I know those companies really well. I wrote a book about uh, Google, a couple books about Apple. Um, and, you know, uh, it is, uh, you know, in some cases, similar in terms of, you know, these are ambitious companies, uh, engineering-driven um, face, Apple's a little more design driven. Um, but with Facebook, the emphasis on growth really, uh, permeates the, the, the company. Um, you know, so, uh, and people don't understand this, but the growth team, um, wound up taking over other parts of the company, um, which sort of changed the way they operated. So the data research is done from the growth team and the mobile effort at Facebook is run by the growth team, right? Um, because originally they felt, well, mobile something new, we're growing into mobile, right? But that sort of changes the way you operate when, you know, you know the, the, the team that focuses single-mindedly on growth is the same one, you know, that's in charge of like products in, in a certain area. So right now, the integrity part of Facebook is run by the growth team. And that's almost a paradox, right? Mm. That's crazy. But, but the, you know, but I guess the, you know, the, the rationale is, well, if we have, in, if people see us as, as more integrity, you know, uh, we'll grow more. But, you know, but it, it is, you know, almost a paradox. So I think that, that that's one, that's one difference, you know, in, in, uh, in Facebook. You know, and again, it's a hardworking hacker driven culture. And the other thing is, you know, I wrote a book called Hackers uh, many years ago. Um, that Facebook is not afraid to describe itself as a hacker culture. Mm. Uh, you literally go there on the posters on the wall saying hack. And then and on one of the buildings in one of the campuses, there's a giant sign, the hacker company that someone saw driving down the road and bought it, you know, and, you know, can put it on one of the buildings. So I, th I think that part is kind of cool. <laughs> I think it's quite cool. I got another question here from uh, Franco. He says, there's a moment in the book. Okay, so obviously you read your book. Uh, there's a moment in the book where you ask Sheryl Sandberg uh, her own signature question. What would you do if you weren't afraid? And right. he wants to know what was her reaction to this aside from her answer? Well, what was amazing to me was this is a question that she asks at the end of every one of the interviews she gives on a regular basis to people from she has a sort of like lean in series of interviews. She brings in someone who, you know, might do some great nonprofit things or stand up for women. They sit there with coffee cups, um, you know, in her office in the background, you see people like, you know, like running around trying to put out fires and, you know, and, you know, but there's this moment of calm and, you know, and yoga Zen in her office while she interviews people. And so always ask them at the end, what would you do if you weren't afraid, which is a motto you see also on the walls at Facebook. And she didn't give me a great answer. She didn't have a great answer ready for herself, which really surprised me. You know, um, she just said, well, I want to do the things that I'm basically what she's doing now, right. You know, make Facebook a great company. It's like that. And I felt um, she bailed on that question. Mm. You know, I think uh, there's an answer that, uh, that she could have given that might've been, you know, um, 
maybe we're real. Maybe the answer would have been quit. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it, it, that was surprising to me because during that interview, she got very emotional, a particular interview. I interviewed a number of times, but she got particularly emotional and, you know, uh, the pressure on her has been considerable. Um, uh, and in some ways by her own high standards, she's fallen short in, you know, what she could have done to, um, make Facebook a place where these problems didn't happen. Mm. Um, so I wanted to kind of circle back just, if you don't mind to the WhatsApp, Instagram and Facebook kind of platform story. So um, there is, uh, I don't know if, I'm sure you know Scott Galloway. Sure. So Scott, basically, I was watching one of his um, clips on Twitter, and basically he was saying, if you think about the fact that you've got um, uh, those three platforms, Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram, if you have them combine to create a centralized data backbone, essentially, um, mm-hmm. His his concern is that um, because that is the reality and probably and he, and he he's quite good at you know making these speculations, but should they take that next step next step sorry forgive me and um, integrate the the data platforms from all three of these platforms and, and I would guess that they already have to a large extent. Oh yeah, I mean one you of know, the one of the things that they were Facebook was cited for that in that you know little five billion dollar fine was. You know, like originally they promised they wouldn't use the phone numbers, which are the IDs on WhatsApp, and merge them with, you know, the the, you know, the information they had about the blue app, the main app of Facebook on people. And, you know, and the WhatsApp people fought. They said, wait, 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 we can't do that. And they actually misled the EU and, you know, and about what they were going to do there. And that was one of the, the violations that they, they, they committed there. So the so that, that that's something where, you know, that's that's part of what Facebook, you know, it's part of that plan of, of an integrated platform. Have you considered the the kind of um, the future of Facebook? Um, if you think about the, you know, as you pointed out, the one one kind of school is kind of saying, well, you know, let's break them up. Um, they're an oligopoly sort of thing, um, and um, and if you think about again their sphere of influence being far reaching. And they're the opportunity to really change the world. Do you feel that uh, Facebook has met that kind of expectation or ambition, I should say? Um, and if not, what do you see as being the, f- the next step of uh, a, a platform like Facebook on the world stage? Well, I mean, uh, everything in this world is up in the air now, right? Mm. I mean, you know, the, the, since I wrote the book, you know, um, really, I mean, like, like literally I'm, I was promoting the book when, you know, the world changed mm-hmm. and, uh, as terrible as it is for everyone and, you know, and including the employees of Facebook in a lot of ways, some of them have gotten sick themselves. Um, uh, I think this has been, you know, in a raw, brutal business sense, like a pretty good thing for Facebook. Um, people are now going back to Facebook from people who very ostentatiously deleted Facebook. They did hashtag delete Facebook. I'm out of here. Have come back to Facebook saying as much as I hate Facebook, they say the, I, it's the best way for me to be in touch with people during this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are using Facebook 
you know, in this positive sense more than, you know, they, they, had, they had before. It's become, you know, a, a lifeline to people. One of the products that Facebook came out with in the last couple of years was a, a hardware product called Portal. And it was a camera that, you know, that followed you around the house, right? Um, as you moved around the room, it, it would like watch your face. So, you, you know, you could carry on a conversation with someone. And it was, in a way, it was a cool product, but, it, but people didn't warm to it because they said, yeah, right. I'm going to put Facebook camera in my house. They don't, you know, who knows what they're going to collect. Um, but as it turns out, uh, some people are discovering portal as a good way to keep in contact with people while they're sheltering in place. Mm. Right. So, and Facebook, I think we mentioned this before is also being a little more proactive about trying to stamp out misinformation about COVID-19 um, on its platform. And, you know, obviously it's playing catch up in a lot of ways, but it is being more aggressive and sometimes actually pushing information to you uh, before you, without even you're asking to it, there'll be a little banner saying, learn more about COVID. Right. Um, so I think in a way though, there still is, you know, uh, an appetite for regulating Facebook. Um, I think the, it's a harder mountain to climb to do that regulation now because people are depending more on Facebook than they, than they were before. Mm, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I love the point that you landed there about keeping in touch with one another, because I would say, I would want, I would definitely argue that, you know, despite the fact that we're more connected than ever before, it feels as though we're not. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you. Um, but um, you know, if it's like we, I can reach anybody you know, on Facebook Messenger, I can phone mates from Amsterdam and London, wherever, all over the world, the US. Yeah. Um, but we're seemingly more disconnected. Uh, I don't know if you if you if you if you ever had that sense. Um, and I wanted to kind of pick your brain for a moment on this kind of uh, reality, in the sense that, um, you know, how how have you seen uh, Facebook as a platform and more broad, broadly digital technology, how do you feel it's fundamentally changed the way with, in which we interact with one another? And when you think about, um, you know, um, augmented reality being one of the key focuses for, um, for Facebook as a strategy, um, then how do you see the, us interacting with each other in the future on a platform like Facebook? Right. Well, I mean, again, there's a sort of a schizophrenia there. On one hand, uh, I mean, Facebook started as a way to be in closer touch with the people on your campus and to meet people um, uh, who knew people that, that you knew, right? So the, the big value of face, the Facebook, which is what it was called when it came out, was you would be, you know, kind of like keep up to date on what your friends were doing, but also be exposed to the friends of your friends and maybe meet new people, maybe date somebody, um, you know, maybe stalk somebody, uh, you know, uh, through the platform. Um, and through, and then as, you know, and this is, this is like, I guess one thing I do document and maybe is surprising how uh, the Facebook we are familiar with now uh, didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be so driven by viral content and, you know, uh, and, and what happens on your news feeds aren't posts from the people who are closest to you, but, you know, people who are in the fringes of your network who might post something which is really popular. Um, and, uh, and, and it's that like going viral aspect of Facebook 
and that Facebook as a news source, which mm. really didn't start out as, um, was, is the other thing. And that's where like the, the destructive content comes in. And after the criticism came, uh, Zuckerberg started talking more about you know, the good kind of content, right? He said, we're going to change our mission to be, you know, to say not just connect the world, but connect communities and, and, you know, get people to join meaningful groups, you know, you know, uh, like cancer survivors or, you know, um, single, you know, black single mothers or whatever. Um, and uh, so there's these two strains and, you know, while they're doing more on the promoting the wholesome stuff, um, you know, Facebook is still a platform where content goes viral and they have to spend unbelievable effort to, you know, police the platform because, you know, garbage gets put on there, right? So mm. those two things happen in tandem. Um, uh, so, in, in, and that struggle, Facebook says, is, is just going to be there forever. Yeah. But it does, it, you know, they can take more decisive steps to snuff out the other one, but it would come as a cost to their business model and their growth. How do you sniff out content? I mean, what have you learned about AI and the use of artificial intelligence on the Facebook platform? Have you seen any recent developments there? What can we expect? Yeah, well, I mean, I did track the you know development of AI at, at, at Facebook. Uh, they came a little late to it, um, later than Google, but they made some critical hires. Um, and they have an interesting system that you know that evolved where they hired one of the top people in machine learning one of the gurus of, of that whole field um and told him that he would have basically start a research lab um you know literally it's across the street from me now uh, new york city um and the uh, uh it would be uh, they wouldn't have to worry about doing things that help facebook in the short term they would just do pure research uh, and then there would be another group that applied AI um, to things like ranking stuff on your newsfeed and identifying bad content like terrorism or things like that. And there's also there's subtle pressure on the research group to do the kinds of research on things that make breakthroughs on the practical stuff. Right. Mm. So, you know, so that, that, that's an interesting tension that happens there. So obviously there's so much stuff on Facebook, there's billions of things posted every day that the only way you get a grip on it is to have a better AI than we have now that can identify tricky stuff like hate speech and be able to identify it. And that's really, really hard. You know, stuff like terrorism content, actually they've done a pretty good job on because it's easier for AI to recognize that the way they use machine learning now. Yep. Are you listening to the audio version only of this podcast? Well, if you are, you can also now join the live broadcast experience on any of our social media channels. That's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply plug in Matt Brown Show on YouTube, Matt Brown ZA on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please, guys, do us a favor. If you have been following the show, which I know many of you have been doing, head on over to iTunes, guys, when you have a minute and leave us a review. It would be great to get feedback from you directly on the show and it would also help us to reach more entrepreneurs all around the world. Alrighty, cool. Um, let's get into the final few segments, uh, starting with quotes of the day. Okay. So, um, yeah, what do you have for us? Hit us. Well, Hunter Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson, 
uh, who was an inspiration to me even before I got into journalism, um, uh, has a quote saying, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Um, man, the going is weird now. Um, and I think, you know, what he was saying is that that's the time that people come out of the corners and make big contributions. And, you know, so I think, you know, uh, we're at a horrible, tragic time now, but um, I look for an explosion of creativity and maybe an incentive for some of us to get out of our boxes and be more creative and daring in coming up with solutions or just doing the work we do. Um, you know, I, I, boy, I would have loved to have seen what Hunter S. Thompson would have made of our current situation. <laughs> um, we're forever impoverished by not getting his take on Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, never boring. <laughs> it's never boring. Uh, cool. Uh, let's get into our second last segment, which is the Injustice League. In, in, in this world and the fact that it can be manipulated by, you know, like people with a lot of money to maintain it and fuel that. And uh, that just makes me crazy. Um, you know, um, my uh, friend, uh, Larry Lessig, um, you know, once thought, you know, the, the way to do this was get money out of politics and then everything is falls in. And, and that's true, but you know, it, it is a self-sustaining system um you know can you see it in the u.s they did this thing for small businesses right supposedly for tiny businesses to help keep their payrolls um you know during the time where people are out of work and the money went to like bigger businesses and you know and even my friends in silicon valley now who have startups you know and their business model isn't based on government handouts they're lining up for it mm -hmm. so um you know, it, that stuff drives me nuts. Well, I do hear you. Uh, so let's get into gifts from uh, the Matt Brown show. Uh, so, um, Stephen, you've got some cool stuff you want to mention and promote at the moment. So what, are you, what would you like our audience to know about? I, I do a weekly newsletter from Wired where I'm an editor-in-chief. And um, um, if you go in, you can find it on wired.com. Just search my name and look for uh, one of my newsletters. It comes out every Friday. Um, and, uh, you'll find the last one I wrote was about, um, you know, uh, we've gone from internet time to groundhog day. So, you know, groundhog time you know, in our lives, uh, cause time passes slowly when you're sheltered. Um, you know, uh, and through there, there's a link to subscribe to wired for $5. You get all the print from wired and all the unlimited web access, which you know, normally there's a paywall. Um, and you get that for a year for five bucks plus my newsletter. And also as a special bonus, um, my email is Stephen at wired.com. Um, and if you send a picture of me with my book, um, and give me your address, I'll send you a book plate with my signature that you could slap into the book. Amazing. How about that? Jeez, why I didn't I think of that? It, but. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. And uh, guys, uh, just to add to that, uh, I'll be giving away uh, digital copies of this year book, number one uh, bestseller on Amazon. You're in a game, that one there. Stephen, I would post your copy that's also signed. Really? I, how, can I, how can I cruise on your 
fumes and you're the number one album. <laughs> it's not the same as the New York Times, though. You know what I mean? But we can always aspire. <laughs> well, you could, you could buy Facebook the Inside Story um, not only on Amazon, but like places like Bookshop.com and IndieBound, and you know, can help your local bookstore, please. And uh, please, yeah. Uh, if, if if you don't buy the e version or audio version, uh, you're you're buying the hard copy, and it's a beautiful thing on your bookshelves, I must say. Uh, then um, you don't. <laughs> Uh, there behind you yeah i show mine right (laughs) um (laughs) that's awesome uh you could uh 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 buy you know buy it put it in your bookshelf and uh even get a book plate with my signature Cool, that? guys. Yeah, absolutely. So head on over to mapbrownshow.com, guys, to get your free copy. Uh, we will post uh, the links up to Stephen's uh, websites and his contact information in the show notes. Um, Stephen, last question for you. Why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed uh-huh. in the morning? Yeah, to me, this whole technology thing is like the story of our times. Mm. Um, even in this time of turmoil, you know, um, you know this. You know this. We are in a historic moment with this pandemic. It's a terrible, tragic thing. But what what we're still going to be left with with our period in time, unless humanity, some future pandemic or something else, wipes out everybody, is the unbelievable advances in technology, which changed our world for the better. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we talk about the the the, the dark side of that. But um, humanity is being changed. And I feel really privileged to be able to get the front row seat in documenting that. So, you know, this book is one of several I wrote that I'm trying to write the history of this time. And um, I hope if we all get through the next, you know, period there, you know, some hundreds of years from now, you know, you know, the people kicking the dust and unearth my books will be able to learn how that humanity changed during this time in the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century, mm. you know, so I, I really feel that um, I'm, I'm documenting something, you know, kind of a, just super important time in the history of humanity. Well, Stephen, that's a very hard job and one I certainly am not qualified to do. So um, I'll be following you closely and uh, wishing you all the very best uh, of luck in the future. Guys, thank you. That concludes this episode on the Map Round Show Live. Um, thank you so much for your questions, guys. It's been a fantastic show. And finally, Stephen, thank you once again. Thanks for listening to the Map Round Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, You're In A Game, for free right now today, you can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my 
clients. Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.